0: Thank you, Daphne. If there's a word of uh, Scripture in the lessons, I just want you to keep in your head. It's not quite a text, but uh, the, loud bit of, the loud passage of Scripture this morning, it's that last verse from the epistle lesson from the Romans. In the same way, meaning everything that went before that in the paragraph, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ, dead to sin, alive to God. Uh, I was in my 40s when I learned that I had Celtic ancestry. I know that sounds ridiculously late, but for some reason I can't explain why. It wasn't till my mid 40s that I knew that my maternal grandmother and many preceding generations came from Cork in Ireland. I have to say that when I declared this to quite a number of my friends and said, so I'm quarter Irish, they sort of looked at me and said, yeah, we knew there was something odd about you a long time ago. But but it took took that long for me to find that out. And one of the things that that did was that I then began to take a great interest in the Celtic Christian tradition. And I know I've spoken about that a couple of times in a previous Lenten course, Gordon. We we looked at that. And some writers in the last 20 years who have written about Celtic Christianity and Celtic spirituality have intriguingly talked about martyrdom, laying down your life, dead to sin, alive to God in Jesus Christ, in colours. They've talked about red martyrdom and white martyrdom, and green martyrdom. What on earth do they mean, you say? Well, red martyrdom was, of course, the spilling of blood, the laying down of your life, quite physically and really, for the sake of the gospel. It was considered in the early church, the times, for instance, when Christians were put into the auditorium of the Roman Empire and were thrown to the lions or whatever, that they were martyrs, repent, recant, turn away from the faith that you say you have, which is against the empire, or you will die. And we know of brave souls in the early church, both female and male, who said, I can't repent, I won't repent, and they laid their life down quite literally, dead to sin, alive to God in Jesus Christ. I'd like to tell you that red martyrdom is no longer with us, Uh, but the reality is that at various places around the world, to be a Christian is still to be a very dangerous and fragile situation to be in. We're told that in the years of the 21st century around the world, there are more martyrs now in the world than there were at any time in the early church. And it's absolutely right that we keep those who give their lives or have their lives taken because they're followers of Jesus Christ in our prayers. But we also have to say that that's not the lot of all of us. Tertullian, one of those great uh, North African Christian leaders, he was the person who said the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Uh, And although it doesn't happen to us much, the Celts and the early church generally regarded red martyrdom as the highest calling of a Christian. Uh, So much so that the early Roman Catholic Church said that if you lay your life down quite physically for the faith, you are translated immediately to heaven. But even though the Celts regarded red martyrdom as the highest calling of a Christian, they had a problem. And it's a problem that you might find slightly absurd Uh, And you might also find the way I'm relaying it slightly absurd, but I'm doing it quite deliberately like this. But they, they, they had a problem, and it goes like this. Listen to this sentence carefully. How do you become a martyr in a time when no one's now trying to kill you? How do you become a martyr in a time when now no one is trying to kill you? Uh, and they thought and they cogitated about that, uh, and they came up with ridiculous suggestions. Some of them even said, well, perhaps we, we, we would say we were willing to kill ourselves. And somebody said, don't be stupid, that's just suicide, that's not can't be what God wants. Uh, and they even considered inciting people. To kill them, I know, let's walk into and agitate a crowd so much and say so many ridiculous and outlandish things that they turn on us and they tear us to shreds and we've laid our lives down. People said, thankfully, wisdom prevailed even in those days. And they said, don't be ridiculous. How on earth can pretending to be a hedgehog and walking up the middle of the M25 be honouring to God? They didn't use that example. I'm using that. And then they thought, no we shouldn't incite people to do damage to us. It says in the Ten Commandments, after all, you shall not kill, and we shouldn't incite people to break the Ten Commandments. So you can see they had this kind of dilemma. I'm making it sound slightly ridiculous, but the real issue was quite clear. And they started to talk about, therefore, what it meant to live as if you were a martyr but you were still alive. Dead to sin, alive to God in Jesus Christ. And it's their thinking and their writing about what it meant to be living martyrs, surrendered completely to God, that causes the writers that I'm talking about to start talking about white martyrdom and green martyrdom. What on earth were these things? White martyrdom was the call to live a holy life, a pure life, a a white life, if you like. It, It was to take seriously passages like we read in Hebrews where the writer to Hebrews says, remove everything that hinders you and run the race. In some senses, what hinders discipleship changes over time and changes over the course of our life. But in the end of the day, those things that hinder discipleship can be reduced to the classic three things that the early church recognized and we recognize ever since. The three things that hinder us becoming absolutely pure And white martyrs are these, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Some suggest that one-third of all adults, including Christian adults, have at least one thing in their lives at any time that's out of control. That rather than them controlling it, it is controlling them. For some of us, it might be slaves to consumerism, to a financial stability that goes far beyond what's necessary for a person of faith and reliance in God. The love of possessions that exceeds what's right for followers who said, lay down your lives and follow me. Or perhaps. Some of us are addicted to habits which we can break any time we like, but we seem unable to do so. From classics like gambling or drugs or sex or pornography, but really whatever holds you back from living as if you are dead to sin and alive to God, striving to be a white martyr, pure, holy. Well, since time immemorial, Christians have wrestled with the world, the flesh, and the devil. The good news is that whenever we become aware that we're not as dead to sin as we would like to be and as alive to God as we would long to be, then God, in the very realization that we have that we're doing that, God is saying to us, I'm drawing that to your attention because I want to deal with it and do something with it and lead you on through it. And that might be you today, in which case, take heart even as you take seriously the fact you know your white martyrdom is a bit gray around the edges. The other thing about white martyrdom was its focus upon being filled with the Word. The very notion of exorcism in the early and medieval era was that you received, if you like, prayer which cast out from you all that was against God, and then poured into you in the space that was notionally left within you, more and more of God's Holy Spirit. So that as you became less and less and less filled with the pollution, of sinfulness and more and more and more filled with the light and the holiness of God, you were progressively dead to sin and alive to Jesus Christ. And the way that you did that was to be filled with the word of God. And so at a time when there were no books because the printing press hadn't been invented for hundreds of years, this is the sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth century Celtic Christians had beautiful, often vellum, sort of leather-bound, beautiful tomes, like the book of Kells, for instance. But actually, most of the scriptures were very rare, and most people couldn't read. And so they were taught verses like some of us were taught verses in Sunday school, except that by the time a Celtic person was in their teenage years and they were a christian it said that they would know by heart all four gospels the whole of the book of psalms and most of the new testament by heart because you can't read it and so in doing that they put the word of life inside them and it became light for them that's one of the reasons why during Lent we say let it be a season not where you're just thinking about giving up chocolate or whatever but that you turn in some way to study the word or that which edifies so that in putting that in you there is less space for anything else that would be more harmful or destructive. What about green martyrdom? Green martyrdom was about living with the cost of obeying God's call. The Celts, living particularly in Ireland, partly in Scotland, partly in Wales, partly in Cornwall, partly in Brittany, they all knew in some sense that their lives, if they were seeking to surrender to God, to seek martyrdom, dead to sin, alive to God in Jesus Christ. It was no longer about them determining what they did. It was about God determining how they spent their lives. It wasn't about them choosing where to go and what to do. It was about being called by God to go to this place, to do that, to take up that vocation, to spend their lives in the service of God. And so when you read some very moving passages in Celtic Christian literature, these Irish Celtic Christians left what they considered to be their beautiful green island isle and set off in little boats with no more knowledge of maritime culture than we have, most of us, And said, wherever we land, that is where God wants us to be and we will proclaim the gospel and we will live out our faith there. And it's by such intrepid explorers that we get places like Iona on the west coast of Scotland and in due course at the other side, Holy Island or Lindisfarne on the east coast. But leaving people behind has never been easy and you you look at some of the messages that were written down much, much later on that were passed on oral tradition about how it broke their hearts to leave their family. And that obedience that costs its martyrdom was described as a kind of emotional martyrdom, green martyrdom leaving behind those they loved and kith and kin and crying as they went, but going because, like Christians down the ages, they said yes to God, and it cost them. And some of us know, some of us this very morning are in a position where we know we're needing to yield more fully to a call to follow Jesus in a way that's costly, costly. It might be costly in terms of finance because the thing that we know we're really called to do hasn't got the income that we've currently got. It might be a call to retire earlier than we thought because we now know we need to spend some time on this because this is the Lord's work that's been given to us, etc., 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 It's like the covenant prayer that we say every year in the Methodist church just earlier this calendar year. I am no longer my own but yours. Put me to what you will. Dead to sin, alive to God in Jesus Christ. Surrender. Red, red, green, white, martyrdom now it's probably a bit late in this sermon for me to say to you that I do have some problems with the word surrender what I mean is that some of its connotations I wrestle with in relation to Christian discipleship you see surrender can be enforced when you watch the Lord of the Rings trilogy of several years ago, which is still one of my favorite trilogy of films. You've got those horrible orcs that are produced from the awfulness of the ground and they've got a white mark of their demonic leader and they're hell bent on the destruction of all that's right and true about the the land that Tolkien pictured in the Lord of the Rings. And there's thousands of these orcs and they surround the ever-diminishing numbers of those who stand for light and for right and, if you like, in this notional world for the good, for the right God. Surrender now, says this orc, as he spits. We'll kill you now, and we'll kill you quickly if you surrender. And you can almost see all the little dwarves and the elves sort of cowering in this kind of thing, thinking, oh good, we'll be killed quickly then. And they hate him. And they hate everything that he stands for. And they would count surrender as a complete and utter failure of the course and the cause that they're fighting for. So there's an element of surrender that when people say, we surrender in Christian discipleship that I sort of shudder with. And so it's very important that when you start to think of the God who calls you to surrender, to lay down your life in either red or green or white martyrdom. You really need to know what kind of God that is. Well, let me tell you what kind of God this is in the scriptures, in the Christian tradition. This is a God who calls, and to answer the call is the best. It's life and it's liberty. It's not despair, it's not resignation, it's not defeat. It is finding your life even as you lose control of it and lose it. This is a God who knew you before you were born, who provided this wonderful world in which to live, who responded to our sinfulness and rejection and rebellion by planning the salvation of all things. A God who when the time was right came in Jesus Christ because this one is the Son of God who lives and loves and teaches and preaches and heals and forgives and warns and challenges and promises. One who is betrayed and arrested and mistried and mistreated, is beaten and tortured and ridiculed and finally executed. This is one who prays for the forgiveness of those who crucify him and then rises again defeating the power of death forever and invites his friends to believe and to follow to be bold and not be afraid and promises them eternal life with him an end to a life of suffering and evil and tears And a God who just when we believe that we are left like orphans in a world sends himself again as Holy Spirit and breathes through the people of God and says, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now this is the point. The God who demands our surrender is not like an orc in the Lord of the Rings. This God is worthy of surrendering to. But this God does demand surrender. You ask him what he wants and he always gives you the same answer. I want not less than everything. With such a God it's not Will you surrender? It's that wooing of the Holy Spirit where just at certain times in our lives, and for you, it might be a time in your life, right this morning, you say to yourself, why wouldn't I surrender to a God like that, who loves me with an everlasting love and promises life rather than death? Higher than the highest heavens, deeper than the deepest sea, Lord, Your love at last has conquered. Whether or not they shared it, the Methodists of 200 years ago also appear to have shared a slight antipathy towards the term surrender because actually the early Methodists didn't use it much. They used another word which I really, really like. They use the word yieldedness. You find it written in all sorts of early Methodist documentation about that those times when they felt they came to another point of surrender. They say, and I yielded to the Lord. Even while they were singing, I surrender all, They didn't talk so much about surrender. They talked about yieldedness. That's a better notion for me. I think I understand why they chose that. Because it implies that there is ultimately a choice. We can always say to God, in whatever circumstances, I do not surrender. And unlike the orc, I will not be blasted from the face of the earth. I will take what's coming for me whenever that happens. But to say to someone, I yield, seems to imply a greater level of voluntary decision. It's like the covenant prayer again. I freely and wholeheartedly yield all things to you. And so, most gracious God, I am yours and you are mine." So yieldedness. Yieldedness about what? Yieldedness about whatever that's his hindering or hampering the work of God in us. Whatever's slowing us down in the pursuit of following Jesus and being disciples. Now many of us here, as I move to a close, will have recognized long, long ago that Jesus is their Savior. In the week that's seen the death of Billy Graham, without doubt the greatest evangelist of the 20th century, many, many, many people will have had an occasion in their life where for the first time and possibly the only time they've said, I receive Jesus Christ. It might have been at a rally where A great preacher, I went to Billy Graham rallies myself. I want you to get out of your seat. I want you to come to the front. We've done that. And we've sung all for Jesus. And we did give all for Jesus at the time that we sang it. And then years elapsed. And then we know ourselves better and then we move into a different phase of life and then we grow up or we move into that relationship or we move out of that relationship and into that job. And actually, we're in a position where that's become a historic thing, but it's not become a contemporary thing. Because we've discovered that our Christian discipleship doesn't rest today and tomorrow on what we said 10 and 20 and 30 and 40 years ago. It rests on what we think now. And we're right back where the Celts were when they rose every day in a climate even colder than this is after a week in 80s Florida. And they said, today is a day where I seek to be dead to sin and alive to God because I yield again. God will fill us as much as we permit him to do, but God will not take what has not been yielded. How do I know I'm in a state of yieldedness? Because I keep hearing Jesus saying, follow me, and I keep Faint heart, misgivings apart, I keep being able to say, yes, Lord, but help me. And therefore, the Holy Spirit reads the deep things in my spirit and enables me from time to time to just say again, yes. So, brothers and sisters, when was the last time that you said yes? Yes. And was it too long ago? Because now you're a different person in a different place with different needs to mark that he demands all. Yielded today. Yielded for tomorrow. To a God who alone gives strength to live each day. Bye.